This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 27th of April, 2021, and recorded on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the new international focus on climate change is leaving Australia behind. Does the country really need the church to solve its political problems? And the government program that just keeps getting worse, the national vaccination rollout. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, but only if they consent, I think. Now, David, I've got some very, very good news. Our new book, Politics, Protest, Pandemic, is now available and it's now on sale for $29.95. It's 412 pages of political magics and it's primarily an outline of Australian politics during 2020. I'd say that if you were going to take the federal government to court, this book would probably contain all the evidence that you'd ever need to launch a successful prosecution. You know, it's not just a list of complaints about government mismanagement and government performance during 2020. It contains information about education, coronavirus, the Black Lives Matter movement, health, education, corruption, and like any good book, it's backed up with facts and figures and it's got footnotes. Kevin Rudd did say that his book has got over 1,000 footnotes. We've only got 180, but that's okay. We've fallen a little bit short there. But everything is verified. And in this post-truth world, it's exactly what we all need. It's fantastic. It looks great. It's really exciting. And, I, you know, I like to think that what we do we do back up our facts. We come from a background of almost the scientific method in that if the evidence is there, we weigh the evidence. If it's not there, we tend to ignore it. 180 footnotes, that's more footnotes than I've ever had in a a publication, I think. I'm really excited for it to be out there. I hope everyone enjoys it and it, it keeps the discussion going of this last year, which I think we will be discussing for decades to come. And in our very humble opinions, the book is an excellent book. It's now available on Amazon and you can purchase it from the New Politics website at newpolitics.com.au. So go out and get it. And we do like to receive audience feedback and we received a few responses during the week. We had one complaint about the correct pronunciation of Tanya Plibersek. When we do this podcast recording, we do concentrate intently, but sometimes we misspeak or get things wrong. So we've been using variations of Plibersek. We've been saying Plibersek or Plibersek, and both of those are wrong. So it's actually Plibersek. I'm of a Croatian background. The Croatians and the Slovenians get on quite well. So I think we should be able to patch up our differences there and keep on with the correct pronunciation. I'm of Anglo background and I have no real concept of pronunciation in other languages, so I will work very hard to make sure that I get names correct too. In our last podcast, we put out an invitation for anyone that does like Scott Morrison to actually get in contact with us. And so we did receive a few. There was one that said that they do love Scott Morrison and as does their extended family. And they also added that they don't know of anyone who will vote for Anthony Albanese. And that includes the Labor supporters that they they know. So, you know, that to me isn't such a, such a big surprise. But we did put it out there and we asked for people to send comments through to us. And thank you very much for that. Yeah, I, I was the one who called that out. So it was, it was lovely to have a, a couple of responses. And um Please keep listening. Please keep engaging. Please disagree with us where you think uh, we need to be disagreed with. We don't want to be talking into a bubble at all. 
Um, it's great to have a, a large audience who does uh, agree with us for the most part, but it is a discussion. And so I was very appreciative to those people who did take the time to write in and say, well, actually, because again, it showed that there's always more places you can look. Climate change is back on the agenda and the US President Joe Biden has put Scott Morrison back into the hot seat by announcing a 2030 emissions reduction target of 52%. The federal government doesn't really have a target, just an announcement of a reduction in emissions of 26% by 2030. But there's no clear strategy or policy mechanism in place for Australia to be able to reach that number. Scott Morrison does avoid the use of the word target and keeps saying that Australia will reach this number by 2030 through new technology without actually saying what that new technology could be. The innovations this government keeps talking about are the gas-led recovery and hydrogen and their old favourite, geo-sequestration, which pumps CO2 underground in the hope that the problem disappears forever. All of these so-called innovations are expensive, they're environmentally questionable and they do make energy generation far more expensive. And th this goes against their idea of keeping prices down, the slogan the government has been pushing for the past eight years. The obvious technological solutions are staring them right in the face, and that's renewable energy. But yet again, this is a government that supports vested interests and keeps misrepresenting what they're actually doing to the public. They're not a government who really is interested in, in the impact of climate change. They're more interested in protecting their donors and their supporters, those who are uh, less interested in cutting CO2 emissions, miners, um, oil manufacturers, other manufacturers. Again, one thing that's worth noting is that 30%, I think, of Rupert Murdoch's fortune is tied up in oil. And the federal government very much listens to what News Corp says. We've examined the relationship between the two entities in the past. We have a government that are climate skeptics. And it's part of this global reach, I think, from billionaires to install useful idiots. We're seeing in the Republican Party in the United States, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Scott Morrison in Australia, Boris Johnson in England, very hardline right-wing neoliberal or neoconservative governments that are very much opposed to changing anything to improve the climate. Whether the backers actually agree that there is climate change, and there's evidence that there is, that they know that this is bad for the environment, so they are building shelters and, and making plans for when when the environment is no longer as livable as we'd like it to be, or whether they genuinely believe it, and there's evidence that maybe they do genuinely believe that CO2 is just pumped into the air and dissipates somehow, and it can, of course, be a mixture of both. And, of course, there's, you know, there's a couple of hundred people in the world who are in the positions that can affect this, and they would all have slightly differing opinions. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that they're against science and they're against history. And those are two things that it's very difficult to come out against, particularly in the long term. Well, you can also have an entire nation filled with climate sceptics. You can have an entire government filled with climate change sceptics as well. But that's not going to change anything if the entire world starts moving against you. So once 
the United States start setting these sort of processes in place and followed by China, it doesn't matter what Australia does, it's going to be punished for not having the right climate change policies in place. And sure, you can have all your vested interests like Gina Reinhardt or Kerry Stokes or Rupert Murdoch. And you mentioned before, 30% of Rupert Murdoch's assets are in oil and, and mining. A lot of people are surprised when they hear about that because he's always seen as the media proprietor, but that's where a lot of his interests are. But the point is you can have all of these vested interests in a place like Australia. Australia is a small country globally, but if they're not prepared to move, well, Australia is going to be punished by the policies that are implemented by the rest of the world. That's the big issue here. Exactly. We'll find that countries will stop trading with Australia because their markets will dictate to them that they don't want to, to deal with people who are damaging the environment. We will find that Australia will become more and more of a, a, a pariah and a laughing stock. I don't think anybody wants that. I think even the most diametrically opposed people to our way of thinking would not want Australia to be a laughing stock. Attitudes have to change very quickly. And fundamentally, if the global community decides to set up a tariff structure where those countries that do not have the right environmental policies or climate change policies in place or the correct targets, which are not just achievable, but set up by policy within those respective governments, well, there'll be a tariff imposed on those countries. And they can continue polluting if they wish to, but they'll be punished financially for doing so. And I think that's the point that Joe Biden is trying to impress upon not just the Australian government, but quite a few countries around the world that if you don't toe the line if you don't put in substantial environmental policies well economically you are going to be punished it's the only language that the climate deniers understand really Uh, if it's bad business to deny climate your mind might change there's quite a few red herrings that are being thrown around by the mining lobby and the federal government as well. And that relates to this entire idea about climate change being achieved through technology, not through targets. Now, that's a bit of a slogan. It's, you know, it's probably a five or six word slogan, which we've got to give the government credit for extending their vocabulary a little bit. But they've also talked about carbon capture technology, and that it's almost a process that's self-defeating. It's energy intensive. The resources and infrastructure required to get into carbon capture technology it actually adds massively to the cost of energy generation. There's also environmental concerns about leakages underground and there's technical mechanical problems. It's still an experimental technology. There's 17 carbon capture locations around the world. There have been some suggestions of the carbon capture technology. It's pretty much been set up with a bit of trickery and chicanery. And it's almost like saying, well, this is the go-to technology for the fossil fuel industry and to say how wonderfully well they're doing with these innovations, but it's not actually working well at all. I, I don't really understand how it works. And so I, you know, I will happily admit that I'm missing something, but it seems to me that it's at best a very short-term solution because of the way a, a chemical gas works. I don't know that you can store in natural ground, I think it just dissipates anyway. So you're taking it out of the air for a short period of time, but really just putting it back in. Hmm. Well, there are quite a few flaws within the technology, as, as I've referred to before. The largest carbon capture and storage site in the world is off the West Australian coast near Barrow Island. It's actually managed by Chevron. And the government has been claiming that they're storing 4 million tonnes of carbon emissions each year. Now, that's actually not the case. They've told a complete lie about this. There have been many problems with the site over the years. It was actually set up some time ago, but it did release 5 million tonnes of CO2 back in 2019, back into the atmosphere. 
And since that time, it's actually released a further 11 million tonnes of CO2. So it might be capturing some carbon and storing it down there, but there's so many things that are going wrong with it. And it's almost like the, it allows the government to say, yes, we are engaged in this technology, which is still experimental and highly inefficient. We are engaged with this technology and this is what we're doing. But the facts seem to be quite different. Yeah, maybe just a... Uh a semantic argument of use jargon and words that sound impressive and important that seem to fix the problem but actually don't. The Minister for Energy, Angus Taylor, he keeps putting out this rosy picture of the new technology available to to the government without specifically outlining what that is and he keeps misrepresenting the facts and figures on climate change. And here's an interesting exchange between David Koch and Angus Taylor on the Sunrise program. Okay. Um, the Prime Minister is joining Joe Biden tonight, a lot of other world leaders for, for um, emission reductions on, on climate change. We've been pretty poor on this. What's the Prime Minister going to talk about? Well, that's not right. When you look at the scoreboard, Australia's performance is strong. We, we have done better. That's be- half we, the UK. We have done better. We have done better. Let's no. look at the scoreboard, Koshi. Yeah, yeah. We well, have the done better than New Zealand. We're half. We've done better than New You're Zealand, cherry picking than Canada, here. than France, you, than UK Germany, is that, redu- and, and then the United States. Okay, UK is reducing emissions by 68% by 2030, 78% by 2035. We're 26 to 28%. That's a scoreboard. So, so these are promises, and, and we will deliver. We'll meet and beat our targets. But the real thing that matters at the end of the day for emissions reduction okay. is outcomes, and we're delivering the outcomes. Quite but you're sort of bamboozling us with statistics because coalition has been terrible. Go back to when the Tesla battery was first introduced and built in South Australia. You were scathing about it. It has been such a success. It's been expanded. Most of the carbon emissions have been uh, reductions have been by the states, not the feds. Well, that's not right. I mean, when we look at Australia's performance across the board, uh, it is outstanding. 19% reduction it's since 2005. The highest level of household solar in the world, Koshi. If you, if you get around the suburbs, your viewers will see it. We have more household solar on roofs than any other country in the world. That's been supported by sensible, practical policies. And it's this practical action that matters, not the virtue signalling, it's the practical action. $1.1 billion we've announced in the last two days right. for practical technologies Just on that, that'll get down emissions. The $260 million on carbon capture. Sounds terrific. Mm. We've already spent $1.3 billion on carbon capture. What's it achieved? What's it delivered for we, us? We have got the biggest carbon capture project in the world. But what's it done Australia? to our emissions? So that's a fine example of the trickery and chicanery that I mentioned before. It's bluff, bluster, gaslighting. It's telling complete falsehoods, bizarre plans. And with all of these ideas about carbon capture, new technology, hydrogen technology, it's almost like we're waiting for Dr. Strangelove to appear with a plan for a nuclear bomb. Nuclear is never far away from the debate. There are those who say that there, you know, nuclear power is actually the only way of the future, mostly vested interests, without ever explaining how you mitigate error. If there's a one in a thousand chance that a reactor could go bad, is that good enough? You know, if you put it on a daily thing, and this is probably bad statistics, but you've got three years before something might go wrong. It might be more than that. But unless the chance is absolutely zero chance, which they can't put in because nothing is zero chance of going wrong, if only because of human error, nuclear isn't an option. 
And we did refer to the idea of a of an international tariff on various countries that are not pulling their weight on climate change issues. You know, we asked the question, how will Australia be forced to change its positions? And the United States is setting this target of 52% reductions by 2030. The United Kingdom has got a target of 78% reductions by 2035. The European Union target is 55% by 2030. So we've asked, well, how will Australia actually achieve even that small reduction rate of 26%? We also have to monitor all of these other countries and global institutions about how they will go through the process of reducing their emissions as well. So Australia is really being left on the outer here, and it's all because of local stupid political games that they're playing. They're appeasing a sector that has grand wealth and power, and relatively speaking, actually employs few people. And looking at the wealth of some of these mining proprietors, Gina Reinhardt increased her wealth by $14 billion to $28 billion in 2020. Andrew Forrest from Fortescue Metals, he increased his wealth by $15 billion to $23 billion. And that means that for each and every second of 2020, they both increased their respective wealth by $478 per second or $278 million per week. So that's a total of $29 billion in the increase of their respective wealth. And that's just between two large companies. And these are the people that are dictating climate policy in Australia. And that just shouldn't be happening. $428 per second is approximately what Eddie and I earn every second. So that's not bad money. (laughs) We have to split it, of course. But in all seriousness, it's quite obscene, especially as they don't personally produce anything. I know that if they were here, they'd say, oh, but we run these companies, but they don't actually do the production work. And I'm going to sound very Marxist here. You know, Marx is a useful framework sometimes, and I want to underline the sometimes. And and that is a good economy one that just extracts minerals and sends them off overseas where they're made elsewhere, or is a good economy something that produces goods and or services that are much more substantial. Eventually, we're either going to run out of resources or the resources that we use are not going to be required. As new technologies come in, as new ways of building things come in, as new inventions and new ways of doing things come in, you can be left behind. I'm not going to be so stupid to say that the mining industry should be completely shut down. We still need other things, you know, zinc, magnesium, uh, diamond, gold, all of these are, and many others, are mined to a greater or lesser extent in Australia. But the reliance on coal, and we'll still need coal anyway, but the reliance of it um, as an export is something that's, since coal mining started here, it's been an important part of the economy. But as other economies change, and as we move away from coal as a as a part of manufacture and we've managed to increase the wealth of three or four people and then unemploy thousands of others what have we gained now you did mention Marx before and i'm very very pleased to say that the government has been listening to you because they've got their own brand of socialism going on here where and that's in the context of the 10.3 billion dollars of subsidies from governments to the fossil fuel industries and that's each and every year the mining industry does dispute those figures and there's you know of course they would 
Uh, they're saying that it ignores the overall benefits to the community, but you know whether it's ten billion dollars or nine or eight billion dollars, that's still a large subsidy from the government. And there's even dispute about those figures going the other way as well. So the International Monetary Fund believes that the subsidies are actually much higher than that. They're around $37 billion per year. So socialism is alive and well in the governments across Australia. It's it's socialism when you give it to the poor. It's good policy when you give it to the already rich. Yet it's the same thing. Um, one of my criticisms of a lot of Australian business is that they're totally reliant on government handout. There's a sense in which I don't mind that, but there's another sense that it's the same organisations that will complain about government regulation and dole bludgers and people on welfare as bad people. You can't really have it both ways. If you're a business who's never relied on government handout and you and your staff have built the business to something successful, it's fantastic. I, I, and I applaud it and I support it and, and all of that. But if you're like, I shan't mention any names, but I might mention that all minerals, for example, are owned by the Commonwealth of Australia and you pay a license to mine them. The minerals and the land isn't owned by mining companies, yet they pay extremely low tax and a a ridiculously low, proportionally anyway, a ridiculously low licensing fee. We've squandered a mining boom to make sure that Gina Reinhart and Twiggy Forest get a few extra billion dollars. Twiggy might throw over 10 or 12 million or 100 million as a charitable thing in that American model. But, you know, it's a tiny percentage of what we could have done had governments of both stripes been game enough to say, we are splitting this with you 50-50 or 60-40 or, you know, and if they'd taken off overseas and gone elsewhere, that's fine. There are plenty others who'd take that deal. It's it's been a squandered opportunity and, and governments of all stripes should hang their heads in shame about it. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify, and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, religion and politics. Does Australia need the church right now? Let's see if that's a good idea or not. It's always difficult to know exactly what is in the collective mind of the government, but to get a good idea about this, it's best to look at the information campaigns that they produce. Last week, we saw the release of one of the more bizarre campaigns ever produced by a federal government, and that was the Good Society campaign, which saw the release of two 15-minute videos directed towards teenagers, and it was all about the issue of sexual consent. The videos didn't mention sex at all, spoke in euphemisms, had strong conservative religious overtones, seemed to be overly and sickly wholesome, and ultimately were directed towards a teenage community that doesn't seem to exist anywhere in Australia. So that's a failed public information campaign. There was an outrage about it, about how ineffective the videos were. But what do these videos say about the mindset of the government? 
And for me, it's more of an issue about the values the government is trying to impose upon the community. Last week, Scott Morrison arrived at the Australian Christian Church's National Conference and made the announcement that what the country needs right now is the church. Australia is not a religious country, it's a secular country based on those principles of the separation of the state from the church. But it seems that the government wants to fundamentally change those principles. Firstly, the video. I'm almost convinced it was a collective fever dream we all had and it didn't exist because it couldn't exist. (laughs) It's very hard to find now. Half the budget of the department went on that video for 24 hours of ridicule. We can't really call the current government good economic managers based on these types of things. It was like you had the most awkward person in the world and the most repressed person in the world trying to talk to their rather worldly teenage kids about the facts of life and they get lost and tied up how to do it. I can't believe it got through any focus testing. Normally these things are focus tested and they and they should be because you know you get someone in out, out of the public with a with a different view or a, a different angle that makes a lot of sense you get a bunch of people who who could have said to them what was that that made no sense at all and it made no sense the woman was the perpetrator in the video that that's the first of about 25 things in a 30 second video that was wrong if it wasn't so funny, it'd be serious. Or if it wasn't so serious, it'd be funny. Whichever way you want to take that, that's fine. To cross into the action zone, both people must agree. Do you want to try my milkshake? Yes, I do. Is it better than yours? No. I think I prefer mine. But what happens when one person takes action without an agreement? You do, huh? Well, drink it. Drink it all. What are you doing? Drink it all. This is what we call moving the line. When a person imposes their will on you, it's as if they were moving the yes line over the maybe zone or the end zone, ignoring your rich inner world and violating your individual freedoms and rights. And that's not good. Well, those videos are wholesome shite. They're depressingly bad. But they were actually produced in 2018, which brings up another issue. Why were they released right now? And it's possible because of the events for most of this year relating to sexual harassment. There's been rape allegations against one particular government minister. There's been uh, rape allegations against a ministerial staffer as well. And there's been a whole lot of issues going on this year within that field. And perhaps this was released so that the government could say, well, look, these are all the great things that we're doing on sexual harassment and consent, but but we can't also discount the idea that this was released as a distraction from all the other problems the government is having now. So while most people were talking about how pathetic and depressingly bad those videos were, not many people were talking about the vaccination rollout. It was a dead cat for sure, but not a terribly good dead cat because it had been taken off the table within 24 hours. It may be a sign that the government is losing its grip on how to distract from scandal and and incompetence and mistakes and 
things that weren't going as they'd planned and and all of that. It may be that the the marketing man needs to do something else and try and market and spin. And we made that reference to that relationship between the videos that were produced, and it's actually from a website called The Good Society. So we made that reference between those videos, The Good Society website, and religious matters as well. And there is an organisation in the United States called The Good Society as well, but the entire nature of those videos just seemed to be promoting this wholesome sort of quasi-religious ideas, and it just seemed to be not quite the right fit for an Australian teenage community. Scott Morrison also did say, he went to a Pentecostal conference last week, he did say that Australia needs the church right now. Is this the right thing to say? And which church? Does it need to be the church or the mosque or the temple or the synagogue? What what exactly is going on here with Scott Morrison in this talk about the church needing to have a greater role within the Australian community and within government? It's a common thing you'll hear among some people of faith that Australia needs more Christian foundation or Muslim foundation or Hindu foundation or Buddhist foundation in their uh, approach to policy. You'll, you'll hear this all the time. Pentecostal Christians are very much tied or very much believe in the fact that things would improve if Pentecostalism was allowed to spread freely through society. Now, I'm not going to take issue with this necessarily. I don't I don't agree with it, but personal faith is a personal faith and uh, that's perfectly fine. But when the Prime Minister, who actually can start to make uh, moves towards this type of thing, says this type of thing, it's a bit of a worry. One of the great advantages of a secular nation is that it means that you're allowed to, when it's done properly, you're allowed to have any spiritual or religious beliefs you like, provided they do not overstep the basic law. You can't be in a child-sacrificing religion, for example, because, you know, that's horrible and against the law. You can't be in a religion that breaks community standards, which are fairly loosely defined. So you can have, you know, exclusive brethren who are very, very conservative, very, very straight-laced, very, very strict. You can have those beliefs in a secular society and be free of undue persecution. You can be an atheist on the other end of the, the scale and be free of persecution. You can be a Buddhist, you can be Hare Krishna, and it doesn't matter because the secularity of the society says that is your choice stay within what we see as the law, and we will leave you alone to do that. That's the great strength. And, you know, a strong society allows a diversity of views, and it allows the disagreement with that diversity of views. A theocracy, and there are a few theocracies around. The Holy See is a theocracy. The United Arab Emirates is really a theocracy. You know, uh, Iran is a theocracy makes things difficult for those outside the religious paradigm, including those with the same nominal faith who disagree with interpretations of the holy works. Section 116 of the Australian Constitution, it does relate to the state making laws that relate to religion, and that's pretty much saying, well, you can't do that, or interference in religion. And it's clearly stated within the Constitution, but it doesn't seem like it's a two-way process where there's Nothing to actually stop politicians influenced by religion or having strong links to religious groups from interfering in politics. And 
I'm not sure how you'd clear that up or make that a two-way process, but definitely the state itself cannot make laws about religion or have interference in religious institutions, but it seems like there's nothing to stop it going the other way. And I think that's quite a bit of a problem, especially in a country like Australia, which is committed to setting up a secular government and maintaining that separation between the church and the state. And it's a fundamental part of a democratic system like the one that exists in Australia. And I can remember a book published by Roy William in 2013. It's called In God We Trust. And he analysed 23 prime ministers in Australia. And that was, well, it got up to number 23 by uh, by the time the book was published in 2013. So that doesn't include Tony Abbott or Scott Morrison or Malcolm Turnbull. So he did analyse the religious nature of the 23 Australian prime ministers at that time. And he suggested that the ones who wore religion on their sleeve, such as Billy Hughes in the 1910s and 1920s and George Reid in the in the earlier part of Federation, they used religion to divide the community, whereas the ones that used it the least in their personal and public outlay, such as Paul Keating, Joe Lyons, Harold Holt, Gough Whitlam, Bob Hawke, they are the ones that had the best human rights records. And... As as I mentioned, his book doesn't include Tony Abbott or Scott Morrison, but both had ambitions to be seminarians. Abbott wore his Catholicism on his sleeve while he was the Prime Minister between 2013 and 15. Scott Morrison is the current Prime Minister. He wears his Pentecostalism on his sleeve as well, but... Abbott and Morrison have been two of the most divisive Prime Ministers in Australia's history. One thing that... Atheist uh, organizations point out in the United States is that the level of people who call themselves Christian in the American parliament, as opposed to what the statistics say that level should be, is quite different. Here, it's, it's always been a bit different. Our early prime ministers were all Presbyterian except for Alfred Deacon, who was a spiritualist and attended seances and believed he could speak with the dead and uh, all of that. Uh, Deacon is one of our great prime ministers, no question. But in some ways, he was a very, I don't want to say strange man, but he was a very unusual man. The rest were all Presbyterians and Anglicans. Uh, I think there were a couple of free church people. The first Catholic prime minister was James Scullin. And the second Catholic Prime Minister was uh, Joe Lyons, who replaced him as Prime Minister. The Liberal Party, I don't think, ever voted Menzies based on his Presbyterianism, though he was happy to identify as a Presbyterian, but he courted the Catholic vote, particularly when the Labor Party split with the DLP. Menzies is the one who brings in uh, state funding for uh, local Catholic schools. I will be fair to Menzies too. This, knowingly or unknowingly, and I think it was knowingly to give him to be fair, starts to break down the, the bitter divide between Catholics and Protestants that had been apparent in Australian society up to the 1950s and which lingered on for a while then too. Labor tended to bring in more Catholics. Whitlam was a Protestant, but he was never terribly interested in it. I think that's all nominal. Hawke, of course, very famously was an atheist. Curtin and Chifley were atheists too, or Chifley was more of an agnostic, though he came out of the Catholic tradition. My point is is that religion was never a terribly important part of the makeup of how we chose our prime ministers. They could use it for political advantage, such as Menzies using his religion to build the bridges between another religion. But Generally, most prime ministers kept their religions as a rather personal thing. Kevin Rudd, of course, wrote the essay on Bonhoeffer, but 
that was more of a way to let the public know how Rudd approached policy. And it's a fairly open way. I suppose Scott Morrison's very public embrace of Pentecostalism is a way of him letting the public know how he approaches policy. The other thing is, though, is that Pentecostalism is, you know, the biggest, fastest growing church in Australia. I keep hearing this. But the numbers never seem to go up. I think it's got a huge turnover. I think people go to a Pentecostal church for a while, maybe a few years, and then move on to something else. Well, it is the fastest growing church or the fastest growing religion in Australia, but it's coming from a very low base. It was 1.1% of the Australian population two or three years ago. It's gone up to 1.2%. So that's not a massive movement. That's not a massive change, but you're absolutely right. It is the fastest growing church in Australia, but it's coming from a very, very low base. So I'm not sure what we can exactly read into those figures. Political behaviour and religious behaviour or behaviours of religious institutions and the people that make up those institutions, that's going to be quite different. And you referred to this before, that people's personal beliefs in religion or if they don't have a belief in religion, well, that's their personal business. And people in public life, of course, they're going to be guided by their religious upbringing and they're the sort of values that they bring into the field of politics or public life. But I guess there is that question about, well, what sort of values are they bringing into parliament? If they're basing their public life so strongly on those religious values, you have to look at their performances in politics as well. So Morrison has been in government since 2013. And since the time that he arrived in politics, he's been the immigration minister, he's been the minister for social services, he's also been the treasurer, and now he's the prime minister. But during that time, he's brought in some fairly violent and despicable public policies. He introduced the robo-debt scheme. He locks up people on Christmas Island, even though they're innocent. He locks up young children over there. Uh, there's been cutbacks of $1.2 billion to aged care services. He directs funding to religious schools of $4.5 billion during the time that he was the treasurer, and that was taken away from public schools. He talks about God protecting Australia, the miracle election victory back in 2019, how much Australia needs a church right now. But he displays the worst and most despicable anti-human behaviours. And that, that's a schism that is going to be very difficult to uh, breach, I'd say. I think Australians are fine with religion. What they're not fine with is hypocrisy. Before everyone starts rolling there, here he goes again. Julia Gillard, who's not known as a hypocrite. Julia Gillard voted against same-sex marriage. Now we could break that down, and we could do this with Scott Morrison too, that the party required her to vote a certain way and that she was committed to various factions, she had to vote that way. But nobody believed that a, an atheist woman who had identified as an atheist since forever could be against same-sex marriage because many of the objections to it are come from a, a, a religious underpin. In a sense, that's fine, provided you're open about it. I'm very much in favour. All of those issues for Julia Gillard related to objecting to same-sex marriage legislation at that time, but that was pretty much dictated by the Shoppies Union. and Who were very staunchly Catholic and conservative Catholic, and she needed their numbers. But it did hurt her, I think. A lot of people, particularly a lot of people who had worked very hard to try and achieve it and saw in Julia Gillard, a prime minister who could deliver it, and saw her vote against it were very disappointed and very angry. And 
the perceived hypocrisy went some of the way to seeing her being removed and replaced by Kevin Rudd uh, down the track. And it's the same with Scott Morrison to, you know, there are a million and five New Testament quotes about looking after the poor, looking after the sick, looking after the needy. People see this and then look at his treatment of the family on from Bilawaya on um, Christmas Island, his bizarre anti-NDIS legislation, the removal of funding from organisations that help the poor, that help the sick, you know, his perceived love of money. Well, I guess it is that factor. If your ideology and your world viewpoint is diametrically opposite to what most people would expect you to do as a Christian or a Pentecostalist, what your government tends to do is cover all of that up through spin and political magic. You wish away those problems in all these different ways. You set up ridiculous video campaigns that make people think about different things in the community. I guess that's the way that you do it. Julie Gillard, when she did have those problems with the same-sex marriage equality legislation back in 2010, she just didn't have enough diversions to muddy the waters for her. And that's that's the thing that Morrison does as far as implementing his own agenda is concerned. He muddies the waters and it's a look over there sort of moment that he keeps on creating and robo debt is downplayed that's turned around into a good news sort of story locking up people on christmas island is seen as a good news story in the sense that look what we're doing to keep the the borders safe Cutbacks to aged care are reported as something completely different. No, we didn't cut back funds in 2017 of $1.2 billion. We actually increased it by $2 billion. So there's always this spin and deflection that goes on. I suspect there's a sense in which he or at least his uh, followers don't mind that people are screaming at him as a hypocrite. Because if they're screaming at him for that, they're not screaming at him for the stuff that they're actually doing. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at the reasons behind the problems of the government's vaccination program. debacle that just doesn't seem to have any end in sight and the government's vaccination program is in complete disarray. We know that this is a government that doesn't like targets for women in parliament or for targets on greenhouse emissions by 2030 so it's no surprise that it hasn't met any of its vaccination targets and it needs to use its spin and marketing to tell the electorate how well it's doing. But the real reason behind the failures of the vaccination program get down to one of the seven deadly sins and that's malicious envy, where the government has been just so annoyed that the state governments have been receiving all of the political benefits from the money that was flowing into the economy through the JobKeeper program, and the government was virtually receiving no political benefit for that, that they decided that what they would do was take on the management of the vaccination program, even though that has always been a state responsibility 
and the federal government has had no experience at all in the implementation of a vaccination program. The idea was that they would manage the entire program themselves. Everything would go so famously well that they'd be taking all the credit for the success. They'd be riding their chariots and doing their victory laps towards the next federal election. So as we know, it's all gone pear-shaped for them, but it gets back to the heart of the problems for this government. They behave on a purely political basis. They look for self-interest and and opportunities for themselves. And by doing this, they create even more political problems for themselves. And then what they try to do is they solve these problems they've created with even more spin and insane politics. It's not really the best way to manage government and especially an important vaccination program. It's like, you know, the school kid who cheats on the exam. The best way that they could have dealt with the issue was to actually study because it would have taken less effort and got them the mark that they were looking for whereas the effort put into the the cheating meant they either got caught or probably did worse or both. And it's the same if the government actually used the resources it has to do the work that it should do, it wouldn't be in as much trouble. And it would probably make it harder for people like us to criticise them because, well, they're actually achieving things. But instead, they go on this cycle of, oh, we'll just spin our way out of it and, and... careen out of control into the next one where we will spin harder. It's quite bizarre. And, of course, Scott Morrison's background as a marketing guy is probably at least partly to blame in the the old saying of to a person who has a hammer, every problem is a nail, probably applies here. Of course, the corruption, the incompetence, the almost pathological need to kick into those less fortunate play a a big part in this stuff too. Overall, the federal government should be engaged in governing for the interests of the entire population. Now, whether a state is run by a Labor government or a Liberal government or the country Liberal Party up in the Northern Territory, it doesn't matter who it is. The, The entire role of the federal government is ensuring that your population is looked after and when there's an issue such as the coronavirus that everyone gets on board and everyone is looked after. Part of this process is the result in the WA election last month where the Liberal Party was wiped out in in that Western Australian state election. They only ended up getting two seats out of 59. And I guess the federal Liberal Party must have been thinking, well, hang on. We did see Scott Morrison trying to get credit for the Labor victory in WA. I don't know how he, he was going to work that one out, but that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to say that the success of the Labor government and their smashing victory in that WA state election was all because of him. The Queensland government was returned with a 4% swing in 2020. Labor had a second consecutive landslide victory just last month in WA. I, I guess for a federal government, you'd probably be thinking, hang on, we're sending out all this money, which which is taxpayers' money, by the way. It's not their money, it's taxpayers' money, but we're sending all this money out to these state governments of a different political persuasion to us, yet they're the ones that are receiving all the political benefit. They wanted to cash in some of that political benefit for themselves. And that's why they took on the vaccination program. Instead of just saying to the states, look, this is what you've been doing ever since Federation. You're very good at it. You take over this vaccination program. 
we'll get the vaccines in for you internationally. We'll make sure that it's manufactured locally or whatever the case might be. You go ahead. You're good at doing this sort of stuff. That's good for the overall benefit of the community. It's in the public interest as well. But they just couldn't see it that way. And they just that's why they decided to take on the entire vaccination program. Now, sure, fair enough. If that's what they want to do, that's what they can do. They're the federal government. And if problems do arise, well, they're the ones that are now going to take the political blame for it. The Federal Health Department is not a health provider per se. They don't run hospitals. They don't run medical practices. They do administer them, which basically means they make sure that the funds are allocated properly and that there's a uniform rules for who gets uh, medical help throughout the country. It means that, you know, if you're in, say, Tasmania, which has less money than New South Wales, that if you go to a hospital in Tasmania, you'll get the same level of care as you will going to a Victorian or a New South Wales hospital. And this is as it should be. The genius of Medibank was not to put in an extra level of healthcare, but an extra level of administration to make sure that uh, resources were allocated appropriately. It can't do things like roll out vaccines. It can't do things like cure illnesses. It can do a bit of research. I think there are researchers who work for the Department of Health and things. It's not about making sure. And so when they gave them the vaccination rollout, they were headed for disaster. And it was an inevitable disaster. It was like watching one of those YouTube clips of someone falling off something. And it's obvious from the start that this is what's going to happen and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. What they should have done, as you said, is just said, here are the vaccines. We can procure those for you. We will give each state department and each territory department the appropriate number of vaccines. And then because you've all been vaccinating. I think vaccination started in Australia around the 1920s. So that's 100 years of doing this stuff. And they're very good at it. Babies get their polio vaccine and their measles vaccine and their all the others. The vaccination system here has worked very well. Well, it just brings up that question of, well, there's been success here for over 100 years. Why not yeah. continue using that success in trying to reinvent the wheel so it just seems like a very bizarre and as i mentioned it's a maniacal behavior by this federal government that seems to be all totally self-consumed the other aspect that i've noticed is that everything now seems to be on an urgent war footing and i do know that we had anzac day a couple of days ago and national cabinet is returning to a war footing to fix these supply problems now someone should actually tell scott morrison that australia is not at war like rolling out a vaccination program is not like going to war. Now, I've been to a war, so I know, not, I know what war is like. It's violent, it's terrible, it's despicable. Rolling out a vaccination program is nothing like a war. And now he's appointed the Navy Commodore, Eric Young. Now, I'd not heard of this person before, but he's managed to employ Eric Young to manage the, the mission. So everything's on this war footing now. Like We're, we're not at war. Andrew Hastie came out last night criticising the uh, Western Australian government for bringing in a three-day lockdown, saying that the diggers never went into lockdown, which was the most bizarre. Hasty is a war veteran. Is he saying that they just stood up and took the bullets because that's what real men do? Of course not. Everyone, even those running into machine guns uh, in World War I, was trying to avoid those bullets and bombs and what have you. A disease isn't a war. The military has 
I won't say no part because the military can be used to distribute quite effectively. The military is very good at distributing medications and, of course, hospitals. But the military shouldn't be running this type of thing because it's just the wrong attitude. There's a show called The IT Crowd, and one of the CEOs of the company they work for keeps declaring war on this and that. It's very funny. And this is what we have. We've got its war. And it's to, again, I think it's a distraction technique. It's a way that little boys use and stunted people use to make themselves seem far more important in the picture than I think they really are. If he wants to go to war, join the military and ask to be posted somewhere and see how long he lasts in terms of his mental health and his his character. I suspect not long. So the vaccination targets have now been abandoned. I referred to this before. The Liberal Party is not really one for targets, so they've abandoned the vaccination target. But it seems like no one can give a straight answer as to when the Australian population will be vaccinated, and that includes Scott Morrison, Greg Hunt, the health minister. And Brendan Murphy, he still seems to be on the scene. Now, he was the chief medical officer up until a couple of months ago. He's no longer the chief medical officer, so I'm not sure why he's still appearing in, in the public domain, but he also cannot give a straight answer. The government and the people within the Department of Health, they seem to be convinced that the best strategy is to keep glossing up the sheen of the government, keep spinning, and everything will work out. And you did refer to the lockdown in Perth, so that's a three-day lockdown that's currently in play at the moment. Possibly by the time people listen to this podcast, it might be over, or it might not be, we just don't know. The Premier, Mark McGowan, he's been calling for more support from the federal government in hotel quarantine management, which is where they're, well, it's not really an outbreak. They've had two or three cases there, but that caused the lockdown. But the issue originated from hotel quarantining. I guess we do also have to ask the question, like if the vaccination rollout had been far more significant than it actually has been, would that have negated the need for a three-day lockdown in Perth? And will it negate the need for lockdowns in the future? So you can imagine that if Australia had been far more advanced in its vaccination program, perhaps that lockdown would not have happened. The other thing, too, is that to remove targets from a government rollout. Normally targets are put in because it's to do with government expenditure. Every cent of government money needs to be accounted for, either in advance or in retrospect, to stop gross and negligent spending, of course. Taxpayers' money, it is seen as very serious. Uh, Those of you who've dealt with the federal government, or any government really, and have found that there's this continual need to know where the money is, it takes you weeks to get your money back. A lot of that is to do with making sure that that money is accounted for. So governments put in targets. We hope that by the end of July, we'll have spent X amount of dollars on this policy. Sometimes these are wild guesses and they're they're horribly wrong because things are bigger or smaller than they expected. So to take the targets off seems to me to be a very, it's basically saying we've given up and we don't know what we're doing, but we're too proud and we're too stupid to hand it to the states who can do this stuff. And I think there's also a supply line issue that uh, seems to keep getting swept under the counter in that they weren't able to procure 
the supply, even though Pfizer got in touch and said, we have it, how much do you want and when do you want it? And I think that the, the federal government really dropped the ball on this one. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.